So won't you turn there with me to the book of Philippians 3. <clears throat> wow. <laughs> like it's coming through the foyer. Uh, Philippians 3. And again, uh, reread for us verse 7 through verse 14 as we look at um, our ambition or what ought to be the Christian's ambition this morning. Philippians 3 verse 7 Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead... I press on towards the goal and the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Lord, we again come to you and come to your word. Pray that you would just work among us. Thank you for those that are here this morning. Just pray you would speak to us now uh, through your word, and thank you for the gift of it. Thank you for the gift of your Son, the gift of your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Well, J.I. Packer, in his well-known book, uh, Knowing God, asks a series of questions in the beginning of one of his chapters. Uh, and it goes like this. What are we made for? The second question follows with that. What aim should we set our lives or set for ourselves in this life? Well, the answer to both of those, he says, is the same. That is the knowledge of God. He has made us, to put it another way, to know Him. And our aim in life should be to know our God. We know that the Bible teaches us that He has, uh, he has displayed Himself through creation as we see His glory and His majesty displayed all around us in the things that, uh, that He has made. And yet we look at society and we can say, if this is truly our purpose and what we're made for, then humanity has lost its way. We are a people, we are a creation that is groping around at best in the dark. Roman tell us in chapter number one uh, that we have taken what could be known about God, we've taken the, the knowledge of God and we've suppressed it, we've kind of held it down and, and we've embraced a lie instead. Well, I think that is pretty evident in society as we try to figure out who God is and when we can't find him by the wisdom of this world and, and the means that this world offers to us, then we reinvent him, make him something other than what he is revealed himself. So it is refreshing if you're reading through the Gospel of John and you come to the very beginning of it and you read that here comes one 
into the world that has come to reveal the Father. Come to show us and teach us all about who God is. We read throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus being referred to as the light of the world. Come to humanity who is subjected in darkness because of its rebellion against God. And, and in that darkness so that we might see. We might see the world as it is, that's true. That we might see ourselves as we are, that's true. But that we might see God for who He is. He's come to teach us and, and to restore that, that relationship that was lost. In fact, J.I. Packer's answer, what are we made for and what aim should we set ourselves to know God is only fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And to know Christ is to know the Father. And to know the Father is by necessity to know Christ. You can't have one without the other. Well, as we've come to look at this section in Philippians, chapter number 3, specifically verse number 10, I asserted last week, for those of you who are with us, that is the very aim of everything, the motivation of everything we do here as a church. It ought to be part uh, of the drive of every ministry that we have. And I would say that not just for this church, I would say for the Christian life, many of you who are engaged in discipleship ministries throughout this summer through Deerfoot and Northern Frontier and Camp of the Woods, Tampa Wingo, all of these, this ought to be part of the motive of what you're doing this summer with those kids and those people you are interacting with. And that is to know Christ and to make Him known. Now there's much that goes on in church activity, but, but the motivation behind our worship behind teaching and discipleship ministries, behind singing, is to that end that we might know Christ and that we might make Him known. To know Him in the study for those of you who teach and guide others and disciple others. To know Him for yourselves. Not just about Him, but to know Him. And that goes beyond just finding a lesson to teach. But also as we teach, as we communicate, as we shepherd, as we read and come to church is to, to make Him known that you might walk away and not say what a wonderful speaker or what a wonderful moment or what a wonderful testimony, but that you might say what a wonderful Savior. You may some way through the process of us gathering together or through your personal discipleship moments come to know deeper, truer, fuller who Jesus Christ is. This is Paul's ambition we find in verse number 10. And I use that word ambition because it shows us Paul's deep desire to attain something. It is the very thing that moves him and motivates him. It is, he is caught up in this reality of union with Christ and, and knowledge or desire to know him fuller, to know him more. You see that in verse number 10, if you'll look at it with me, that I may know him. But he begins this earlier by suggesting this knowledge of him in Paul's mind is beyond comparison to anything else that you and I might possess. And just by way of folly and comparison, he goes through this long list of who he was and what he counted on, all of his all of his achievements in life and his privilege we talked about last week of, of everything that he was. And he says, this, this was all what made me me. Made me happy and confident and secure. Uh, all of these things that I possessed 
I possessed in the flesh. And he said, in verse number 7, But all of this that I had considered gain, I counted for loss for the sake of Christ. Verse number 8 reveals why. In fact, he says, I count everything as lost because of their surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. He takes all that he could lay hold of, all that captured his mind and his heart and his life, and he says, compared to knowing Christ, it is rubbish. It's nothing. I I don't want to make more out of it than I'm gifted to be able to make more out of it. Just to remind you this morning, church, that there's a surpassing worth in the reality and the knowledge and the truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ surpassing worth and all that we could attain in this life, all that we could store up. There's something greater, more valuable, more lasting, more fuller, more joy-giving found in Jesus Christ. That I may know Him. That I may know Him, He says. Well, He tells us a little bit of what He found in Him in verse number 9. And that is righteousness. Not a righteousness that He earned but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness which is a gift from God that depends on faith. So it's no surprise that when he, when he explains this, that his mind just continues on, that this surpassing knowledge of Christ, this surpassing worth in the knowledge of Christ is the very thing that he longs to grow deeper in. That his roots of his life and his mind and his, his energy would be, would be grounded further and further in the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. That I may know him, he says. I know every example falls apart in, in one way or another, but let me just give you an illustration maybe that would help you. Which one of us would be, would be so negligent when we have received such a great inheritance or some great estate? Attached to it were all sorts of, uh, of gifts and, and wealth and investments. And which one of us have receiving that would just kind of lay it over to the side without peering in to seeing the depth and the width and all that it entails? In a natural way, we would dig into it to know what was going on and what all was given to us, what all we inherited. In another way, Paul is saying that we've been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, a wealth, an inheritance in Christ. And he says, I want to know the depth of it, the breadth of it, the width of it, the height of it. I want to know Him. I want to come to understand more what I've gained in Christ, more of what I anticipate in Christ. I want to know Him. It ought to be our desire as well that we might know Him. It is ours in Him. All that He is, all that He has done is given to us in Christ and it should be our desire to grow to understand it more fully. Now how do we do that? Well, he says in one way we come to understand we grow and come to know Christ more through prayer. We pray to Him. We communicate to the Father. We are engaged in in conveying our burdens to Him and, and talking to Him. But we also do that through the Word. And I just want to put it this way, that's the only authority and infallible source we have to know Christ. He lived 2,000 years ago, and yet God preserved what He did 
and explained it for us in His Word so that we might have a sure record of how we can know Him. And not only how we can know Him, but also what it means to know Him and, and what He's like. It is in the Word that we come and through the Word that we come to know Him fuller. It is studying and reading and, and, and seeing throughout the pages of Scripture, the Old Testament anticipating Christ, the New Testament explaining Christ in and giving to us what it means and who He was. So we know Him through prayer. We know Him through the Word. We know Him through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Christ sent us the Comforter to come and that He might testify to who He was. So He might open our eyes. But I think important, I think is what Paul's referring to here, not only do we know Him through prayer and through work of the Holy Spirit, we know Him through the Word, but we know Him experientially, relationally. He is a personal Savior. And I am glad of that. Just considering what the Bible teaches us, His knowledge and gifts to you rise above the information found on your driver's license. As you speak about knowing God and the reality of Him knowing us, He knows more than just how tall you are if you told the truth about that on your license, or He knows how much you weigh if you told the truth. You know, he, he, knows the, he knows the depths of who you are. The hairs on your head are numbered. He knows the most intimate details of your life. Jesus referring to his disciples or speaking to his disciples, refers to himself as being a friend, giving to us the fellowship of a comforter, sympathizing with us in our weakness and desires. He has come to be known by us, and he knows us. And Paul refers to two ways here that this is fleshed out. Verse number 10, look at it with me. First of all, he says, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. Secondly, he says, I want to know him as I share in his sufferings. To know Christ is to know him savingly. I think that's worth keeping in mind. To know him is to know him savingly. It's no surprise that Paul uses this language in the power of his resurrection because it is the resurrected Christ which, which stopped Paul on his road to Damascus. You might recall the vision found in Acts chapter 9 as he is encountered with this Christ who is no longer dead. He wasn't stolen by the disciples. It was, it was him seated there on the throne who is confronting the Apostle Paul. This powerful, living Savior, this, this death-defying Christ, the power of the resurrection. I think it is... One theologian put it here worth stating, Christ therefore is rightly known when we feel how powerful His death and resurrection are and how efficacious they are in us. He goes further to say, now they are furnished to us expiation and destruction of sin, freedom from condemnation, satisfaction, victory over death, the attainment of righteousness, and the hope of a blessed immortality. Here he's speaking about the knowledge of God that comes, the knowledge of Christ comes in the power of the resurrection. And we have one whole chapter in our Bibles dedicated as an apology of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By that it just simply means a defense of Jesus' resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. Showing us the significance of the death that Christ died wasn't that it was the end. That it was just for somebody or he was just... he was 
misjudged or, or falsely accused or whatever it may be, all of this done and, and shown to be effective in the fact that he raised from the dead. The knowledge, I think, applying to us, this power of the resurrection, is seen directly in our own conversion. The power of Christ to arrest us and the power of Christ to, to display in our life that new desire and a new spirit, that new walk that we once were opposed to. It is the work of our conversion. It is the work of our continual walk. Turn with me to Romans chapter number 8. It is the power of the resurrection of Christ which explains for us how a Christ-hater, one who ambitiously sought to destroy the name of Christ, became devoted to Christ. But here it shows us not only seen in that way, but seen in our own lives. Verse number 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That power of Christ being raised from the dead, the Spirit of God living within you, which transforms you, conforming you to the image of Christ. Little by little, step by step, the power working in us, not left to our own abilities, not left to our own devices, but God working in us powerfully to make of us and do through us what you and I could not do ourselves. And by this and through this, God is revealing Christ to us. We get to know Him more and more fully. We revel in that. We glory in that. The knowledge of Christ found that way. But He continues on back in Philippians, if you want to turn back there with me, not only knowing Him and the power of His resurrection, but He says, I want to know Him to the fellowship of, ESV says share in his suffering, same word, speaking that communion that we have with Christ in his suffering. Do you find that odd? We want power. <laughs> we want the display. We want what we can feel. We want, what we, can, uh, we want that conquering work and all the other things like that. And yet Paul says it's not just there that we know Christ. It is through suffering. It is through sharing and suffering. Uh, we don't hardly talk about it much, or if we do, it's always awkward because suffering is dark, it's hard, it's an odd topic to discuss. Half of the Psalms, if we're honest, is kind of weird, right? Because they're laments. Are you allowed to pray like that? Are you allowed to sing some of those things? I know you probably don't say that, but you thought it, Surely. And yet you cannot read the New Testament and avoid the reality of suffering or being confronted with the suffering as it comes to the Christian life and the early church. In fact, Paul tells Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Here is one writing to a church. Here is one who is an expert at suffering for the case of Christ, who have experienced the suffering of Christ, writing to a church who is in the middle of facing persecution and difficulty for the name of Christ. Suffering is not foreign to them. And what kind of comfort does he offer them? 
In chapter number 2, he offers a suffering Savior and a risen Lord. You remember that as he tells them about one who, who come and humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And then it is the same one who is highly exalted. And I think there's comfort found in knowing that Jesus did not choose the easy path. He was a man who was acquainted with grief and sorrow. It is easy for us to forget that. And just a week ago, I believe it was, it was well, a month ago I was contacted by a funeral home to, to do a um, committal service for a family who was out of the area. I think their father lived here at some point a, a long, long ago, and he was buried down the road at the graveside. So they asked if a preacher would come and say a few words and, and maybe pray with them. And so I said I would. I don't know the family. I don't know where they are with God. I kind of I, I have my idea so as you're making preparations, how do you prepare for something? You don't know him. You don't know anything other than the obituary. And it was very vague. And so I began studying and began trying to offer them some kind of comfort in John chapter 11. Maybe you know the verse, Jesus wept. Showing us and reminding us the emotional life of Christ. He was no stoic far removed from the difficulties and the hurt and the pain and the sorrow that he's experienced in this life. In fact, we find the opposite. He was a man of sorrow. And these are facts we learn and are comforted and encouraged by as we suffer ourselves. It, it is in some ways the verses that we have become familiar with and the facts that we learn and, and the easy days and on the mountaintops are those things which sustain us in the depths of our valleys. It is those things that are meant to comfort us and become more real in our life and, and deeper as we go through hardships and sufferings. It's the case with Paul. It's the case with the saints throughout church history. And it's the case with many of you here. There's a realness to those promises that are not realized, that are not fully grasped or understood in the easy moments, but in the depths of despair and sorrow, Christ is known to us. Fuller ways, richer ways, deeper ways. One Puritan said it like this. He said, in a word, suffering time is the time wherein God makes His attributes visible. In the school of affliction, God reads lectures upon his attributes and expounds himself to his people so that many times they come to know God more or they come to know more of God or more experientially by half a year's suffering than by many years of sermons. And I would say amen to that. That's true. It's true. Second Corinthians is a whole book about the comfort of God and suffering as Paul goes through all the things that he went through. And yet many of you can testify to the, to the reality and the truthfulness of Paul's words that in trials, in your trials, in my trials, God's grace is what? Sufficient. And that in our weakness, we find Him strong. We don't only know God through the things in which we desire and the things which we long for, but we know Him in the depths of our valleys. We know Him in the middle of our sufferings. There's a richness and stability to the promises of God. Why? Because the same thing He promises us in the good times, if we could say it that way, are still true when times are not so good. 
they've become proven in our lives. His faithfulness is proven in our lives. We grow deeper in our understanding and love and worship of God through our sorrow, through our suffering. And he says this, doesn't he? I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share in his suffering, becoming like him unto his death. And that's the whole goal of the knowledge of God, so that we may, we may be conformed to his image and become more like him. That we may live this life and continue to walk this life as we grow in Christ in humility and obedience as he was humble and obedient to the will of the Father. But notice, I want you to, with me, the next verse as he continues on, that by any means possible I may attain unto the resurrection from the dead. His desire is that he may know Christ. It isn't just that he may know Christ, but that he may know the, uh, that he may know the, the perfection, the promise which Christ has offered him. This is what he's kind of talking about here in verse number 11. As you go down through verse number 15, he's speaking about his desire to know him and then to, to attain or to receive or to, to have that promise that one day... What he desires, what he's chasing after, will be finalized in him. His own resurrection from the dead. It reminds us that we look forward to the joy of the resurrection and all of its blessings. The theologians refer to this here, at, uh, here and not yet. The idea that God's saving work and the blessings that we experience in this life as we journey towards knowing Christ and growing in our faith. And then, then the not yet of all of that, the fullness of we have not seen. What it means to know Christ and what it means to understand His death, burial, and resurrection will not fully be grasped until you see Him face to face. And even then, for all eternity, we will be amazed at what He has done for us. That's what Paul is saying in his mind. He's he's looking forward, not just to know Him in this life and through the power of His resurrection experientially here, but his desire is for what is promised to him at his own resurrection of the dead. When all uh, of faith will become sight as we will know even as we are known. Paul gives us a flavor of this in 1 Corinthians 15 as he speaks about the glory of the resurrection. I'll read a few verses for you in 15, 51 through, well, 58, I think. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be what does he say there, church? We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And then he goes into that great hymn of the victory over death that's found in Jesus Christ. O oh, death, where's your victory? O oh, death, where's your sting? His desire is for the full work to be completed in him. Those of you who have struggled with sin in this life, that's your desire as well, isn't it? To lay down the burden, the fighting, the, the battle. Lay down your weapon and your armors and to, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Enter into the peace and the rest which God has prepared for us. And that's the end promise. That's what Paul says elsewhere in Titus as he refers to the blessed hope and appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want to know him. 
I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his suffering and become like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain into the resurrection of the dead. There was in Paul's day, some scholars suggest, has been in the days of the Wesleys and even our modern day, this idea of you can get to a place where you have arrived. How many of you feel like you've gotten there? (laughs) Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Just talk to me afterwards, I guess. There's a story of Spurgeon who ran into one of these men who taught, who who was teaching at a conference that he um, that he had perfect. Basically, he got to sinlessness. He doesn't sin anymore. He doesn't struggle with all that. Spurgeon did not refute him. It was said, at least the stories recorded, that the next morning he took a bowl of milk and poured it over the man's head to see his response. He said, by the way of his response, he uh, he realized his reaction disproved his teaching. He had not been. Perfected. Imagine the anger that went on with that. You know, there's uh, comfort in Paul's words here. Uh, There's comfort and encouragement. The comfort is the fact that Paul himself had received great visions and had been used by God tremendously, probably greater than, uh, than anyone else maybe in church history. And yet, speaking to this church, a fellow sufferer of Christ, going through uh, similar battles like Paul, he says, by the way, don't worry, I've not arrived. I've not obtained to it yet. I've not reached it. Verse number 12, verse number 13, I do not consider that I've made it my own. That's that perfected state or that, that full, uh, being conformed fully into the image of Christ. I'm not, I'm not at a place in my life where I've quit growing. Quit learning, quit following after, quit needing to be improved and worked on by the Spirit of God and through the Word of God. Well, if that's true with Paul, you say that's true with everyone in here. There's a, a bit of confession there. We've not arrived. But he doesn't leave us with that reality, well, you've not arrived, it'll be all right, and, and just kind of leave it ago, leave it leave it alone like that. He says in verse number 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. He said, my desire is to know Christ, to know Him fully and deeply. I haven't been perfected in that, but I'm pressing forward. There's a confession of humility, but there's also a direction to keep moving ahead. Keep moving ahead. Keep striving, growing, learning, trusting, believing. It's the call of the perseverance of the saints. How do you do that? Well, you do that by what he says. We move ahead by forgetting those things which are behind and press towards the goal of the prize of the high calling of God. I am, some might be a surprise to see me. I'm from the Bible Belt in Tennessee. Uh, it comes out every now and then, sneaks out. My accent betrays me. One of the sad things you find there is many churches, Mary and I was talking about this here recently, many churches who are still living, holding on to past successes and victories and just trying to hold on to that like an old monument. They've quit growing 
They've quit striving. They're just kind of a remnant of a shell of what they once were. And in some ways, their desire is to try to find someone or some quick fix in order to, to bring them back to the glory days. We're nostalgic people, aren't we? There's a smell that just comes on. You just think about your mom's cooking, right? Maybe you pass by a place and you just kind of feel like, this is deja vu. I'm not, I'm not promoting that stuff, but I'm just saying, you know, we feel that I've been there or your childhood. I tried that last time I was visiting Tennessee and I was driving around where I grew up and I was just like, it doesn't even look the same. So I didn't get any feelings warm or cold either way. Part of the danger for the body of Christ, for a local church, for ministry, for our own personal life is just to be stuck with those great successes or any kind of success in the past and, and, and just kind of quit. Kind of give up. We will not continue. We will not know Christ. We will not move forward and grow and be healthy if we live like that. You've got to let those things go. There's a, there's a thing in which we, we embrace the victories which God has wrought with us. We remember His faithfulness and His trustworthiness and we rejoice in those things, bring those up and, and be reminded of those things in a way which propels us to continue on, not just to stay back. Like so many monuments in the Bible Belt that you might find. And so many Christians who are just railing at the current uh, society and the current generation instead of being engaged in how they can pray and reach and, and disciple those who are struggling in the generation now. He's saying we've got to press forward. In order to press forward, you have to let go of those things. You have to let go of those past successes and those things which, which hinder us at times, those failures, the sin that we've struggled with. We've got to let those things go if we are going to press forward. I don't know if you're like me, but there's some things you just kind of hang on to and you just bring those up just to look at, just for whatever reason, I guess. Maybe the things in your life and failures in your life that just keeps you from trusting Christ now or, or struggling with His faithfulness to you or His love for you or, or victory over sin or whatever it is. You've got to come to a place of trusting Christ and, and, and resting in Him and His complete work of saving you and delivering you and forgiving you. And in that, in that work of the gospel and what He's done for you there, find the strength and courage to move forward growing in your relationship with him and your your knowledge of who he is that's what we want as a church it's what we want as individuals to continue to lay aside those things which are behind us and we press forward to the prize of the mark of the high calling of god it's the image of running leaning forward that you may cross the finish line well that is our prize isn't it that is, one day you and I will be changed in the twinkling of a guy. It says we don't know what we'll be like, but we know when we see him, we will be like him. And that's the promise God gives to you in the gospel this morning. So let me just give a few things that was just on my mind, maybe helpful to you, maybe not. You can write them down, throw them away. I don't care what you do with them. Well, I do care in some ways, but... Beloved, if that's the Christians to desire, then you cannot afford to be negligent in your spiritual walk. You cannot afford to be just a spectator 
You cannot afford to be just a consumer of Christian things without ever getting in them and understanding what they are and understanding what Christ has done for you. We can't always be consumed with what's going on in the moment in this life, which is temporary. At some point in your life, you will have to set your focus on things that are eternal because they will outlive everything, outlast everything that consumes us. If you're going to live this ambitious life to know Christ and to press on, then you can't be negligent. You can't be lazy when it comes to your spiritual walk. You must be engaged in the things of God. You must set His Word before your eyes if you're going to know Him. You must let your mind meditate on what He's done for you and, and His nature and His personality. And, and I know, maybe speaking to some of you guys, you're not readers, I get that. I, it's hard work. But we cannot know Him apart from the revelation He's revealed Himself to us in. As a child, I used to have nightmares and I put the Bible under my bed and, and hoped that would fix them. Some of us live our Christian life that way, right? We, we put the Bible under our pillow and just hope it kind of gets through all this stuff. You will not know Christ. You will not be grounded and founded. You will not be amazed at what He's done for you. You'll be caught up in His, His grace without, without being engaged in the things of God. You can't be negligent. You can't be a spectator. You can't be a consumer or that's just somebody else's thing. If it's promises God has given to you, you must be engaged and set those things before your eyes. And I would say even more so in the day in which we live. You remember Romans 1 and 2, right? What he says, be, be, don't be conformed to this world, be transformed. How? By setting those things before your eyes, by renewing your mind. Constantly, because we're constantly being bombarded with everything else. The church in Philippi facing suffering and all the things that they're suffering. What is he doing? He keeps putting Christ in front of them. The, the, the promises of God in front of them so that they may be stable and firm and trusting and, and victorious in the midst of their difficulties. You can't be negligent. You must be engaged. You must learn and read and listen and think. You must grow. And that's my encouragement to myself as much as it is to you this morning. Paul's desire, his ambition was to know Christ. And I would say that's the Christian's ambition. It ought to be the Christian's ambition that we might know him. In church, not only do we want to know him, but we want to make him known. That explains why we evangelize, why we support missionaries, why we invest in a pastoral resident, and why we do those things like that, because we not only want to know Christ, we want to make him known wherever God opens a door and gives us a platform and a voice. Amen? Amen. And if you don't know him this morning, let me, just, let me just say the very reason Christ came into the world, the very reason he took on flesh, is so that people like you and me in our lostness, in our blindness, in our ignorance. You may be offended by that word, just simply means in your and you just didn't know. In that we might come to know who God is. And he came at the expense of his own life, dying on the cross, paying the penalty for sin, so that you might come and live with him and enjoy him forever.
And so if you don't know him this morning, I just let me encourage you. Talk to me after the service. I'd love to take the Bible and just show you who Jesus is. Or at this very moment, many of you heard the gospel over and over. It's not the excuse of not knowing. You've just not done anything with what you've heard. By faith, just receive the message of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in Him. The Bible says, They that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. Thank you for those who are here. Just pray that You would use this as an encouragement to us to spur us on to grow in our understanding of You and our walk with You. Lord, help us as a church to continue to pursue Christ and who He is, not just in facts, but in our relationship with Him, our experience with Him in this life as He walks with us. And Lord, continue to give us a desire not only to know Christ, but to make Him known. We'll give you the glory for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.